Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to the Nurse Leader Network podcast. I am your host, Chris Racinos. Today, we're going to be talking about something that I have been wanting to do for a long time. And I've had tons of people come up to me and ask me, Chris, how are you doing this? Like, how are you fitting this in? How are you doing this? And yes, it is writing a book. It is writing a book. I am in the process of writing a book. If you're following me on Instagram or LinkedIn, I am dropping little tidbits about the book. Um, And I honestly could not have done it without the person that we are going to be meeting today. So I'd love to introduce to the audience Azul Taronis, who is the CEO and founder of Authors Who Lead. Welcome, Azul. (laughs) Thank you so much. Such a wonderful introduction. I'm so glad to be here. Now, Azul, you're being kind of modest because uh, (laughs) we know you're a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. You have done just tremendous things with authors and leaders. I'd love to really start with your journey. Like, how did you become a book coach? How did you become my best ever book coach? (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, I, like many people, was in a very traditional career. Like many of you, you go to school, do your best to get good grades. And I became a teacher. And though it wasn't what I aimed out to do, it's what I ended up doing um, for 25 years. Uh, I was a teacher, a principal. I was a founding member of a faculty of a graduate school of education. So I was entrenched, like I was in it for a good part of my life. And I had musings of doing something more. I'd always felt a little pretentious to think I should be doing more because shouldn't I be happy? I have a good career. I make good money. I have healthcare. I have seniority. I have all these lovely things that people would die for. You know, it's I always used to look at the people who are who's been here 25 years and I raise my hand like, geez, that's me. How did I get here? <laughs> but I had been in and out of the classroom multiple times. I found my best growth opportunities are to return to the classroom. So I would lead from inside my classroom. So I was a teacher at the time and thinking I'd, I want to do something more. So I started listening to podcasts and li- listening to people growing something bigger than themselves. Smart Passive Income Podcast was one of those podcasts and blogs. And I was like, I want to be able to do that. How does that, how, how do people do this? But I just wasn't confident enough that I could do it. Like, I was like, I don't want to go back to school to do something new. Uh, so I wrote a book about building something outside of the thing you're doing by finding a mentor. And that book was called The Art of Apprenticeship. But I hadn't always been confident in writing. Ironically, I was an English teacher, but I'm dyslexic. So even in college, it was really tough. And I didn't know I was dyslexic until I was a senior in college. So words were already were always hard. I had started books multiple times, but never finished. Ironically, I had helped my students publish. I had every eighth grader graduate in my class as a published author. Wow. Uh, so kids walked around with their name in books and their t- you know titles that they could see were on Amazon. I felt pretty proud of that work. But we were doing a book fair one day and I had all my books out <laughs> of the students and we we're having another student class come in and read the books of our students, you know. And one of the students naively came up to me and said, hey, Mr. Terrones, where is your book? I want to put it out. And I said, I, I don't have it. And he's like, well, could you get it? <laughs> uh, I thought for a moment, maybe I'll just lie and say, <laughs> I, I forgot it. But the truth was, I just had been terrified to put myself out there. And so I told him, I was like, I'm just afraid. He's like, you don't need to be afraid. You tell us not to be afraid. It's okay. And he walked off. And I thought, why am I, what is my problem? It's not that I don't know how to do any of this. So I set out 
to do the thing. I, I signed up for a thing that Pat Flynn was having, which is the, the mentor that I have now. Did you have a one-day business breakthrough where everybody could show up and put their business on a hot seat? I signed up immediately with my credit card because I didn't have enough money at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually Steve might have actually, my husband left his healthcare career for out of 15 years and was actually, we were working on one income, a teacher's salary. And I was like, this is not the opportune time to be doing anything like this. But I decided that day I was going to go with something. I didn't have a business. I didn't even have an idea. And you're supposed to be on this hot seat where they tell you, okay, what's your business? What's your brand? What's your email list? I didn't have a thing. So I decided that day I would write a book. And so in the 30 days before that, I wrote that first book that had been taking, I tell people it took me 24 years and 30 days, 24 years to think about it, talk about it, read books about it, take workshops about it, but 30 days to actually get it on the paper because I finally had an intention, a reason to do it. So I showed up with that book and that's how I I showed up as an author coach. I wasn't trying to be, but once I told my story, everybody there, these entrepreneurs like, can you help me write a book? Because I've been wanting to write a book forever and I don't know where to start or how to do this. And so that's sort of how it happened. I never had a business. And for years I became a a book coach or a book whisperer or a book doula, some people call me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but I never midwife. I never had a midwife. Someone called me that yesterday. <laughs> You're like my book midwife. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I, and it just happened. It what I I and Pat Flynn was one of those people that asked me, the person I was trying to get close to to learn from asked for me to coach him. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like just because I took the risk of writing finally my truth. And that was almost seven years ago. Wow. You've really helped coach and develop some tremendous authors. You mentioned Pat Flynn a couple of times. Tell the audience what happened with his book. Well, ironically, the thing that I tell people the most is that the book is for the author first. Like this, it's, your, it's, it's to serve you first. For those of you who don't know Pat Flynn, which I don't suspect many people may know, but he, he has a blog about making passive income, like making recurring revenue online so you can live your life. But he, he had only been selling other people's products by testing them and validating them and saying, this is a good product. Well, he needed to start selling his own products, but was afraid actually. So the book that we wrote, Will It Fly, is about testing the idea that you have to see whether or not it's worthy enough to get off the ground. Um, and that book did become a Wall Street Journal bestseller and also became the the beginning of all the courses he now teaches because before that he didn't have courses. And so, yeah, it really, I think, shifted the way he saw himself as well as the community he serves, which is mostly people who have never made any money online. And he really wanted to serve them more than anyone else. I've got to admit that book literally was the beginning of my journey to becoming an entrepreneur. So that book, your help of that book completely is why the Nurse Leader Network podcast and business exists today. So, um, yeah, you just don't, you just never know, right? Like I hadn't even thought about becoming a nurse entrepreneur. And then I read this article about a couple of people that he had helped. And then I looked into him, found the book and was like, wow, I'm sold. I drank the Kool-Aid and, (laughs) you know, made a dramatic change around changing my life. I left my job as a nurse executive to um, proceed with that. So now that we've done a whole free commercial for Pat Flynn, because he is awesome and his work is awesome. Back to Kind of, you know, being an author, you you mentioned to me, I know when I first started really that this book was going to transform me before I could transform my audience. And I didn't really understand what you meant by that. I, you know, I was like, okay, well, it's going to, you know, I'll be writing it. And in my mind, what was transforming was having a habit of writing and like I was going to transform and understand editing and publishing. And 
all of that. But the transformation that's occurring is much different than I could have even imagined. So tell me about the transformation. When you say that an author needs to transform or will transform through book writing, what does that transformation look like? It's a great question. So many people come to me and have what I believe are good ideas for books. They're professionals like you, uh, maybe they're doctors, lawyers, nurses, chiropractors, pharmacists, business owners, and they, they know the value of a book because they see the people they watch and follow have books, and so they want to write a book. And I tell them, I said, look, there's two kinds of books in my world that are nonfiction. There are transactional books, and they're very helpful. Uh, I'm not d- downplaying them. The 101 Instagram Secrets to Success might be a very useful book if that were such a book. It's, but it's transactional. There's how you do X, right? To get Y um, results. And that seems like what most people think that they're going to write, like a book about stuff, about some information. But what I find is that the books that are most useful to people are the ones that have a shift, a transformation inside of them. Either the transformation of other people that you collect and you talk about, or the transformation that you're making in the process of writing. Because you're trying to apply something that you say, this helps people. But if you say it helps people in the past, like it helped me do this in the past, you're, not, you're really shortchanging yourself. And you're not leaning into the future where you might be headed, uh, where you might have most value. And bring those people along with you. You don't have to be miles ahead of them. Just a few steps ahead of people is enough inspiration for them. They just have to believe it's possible. And so as you're changing and growing, you have to realize that. So the first step is understanding what am I doing this for? What do I want this book to do for me? Do I want more speaking gigs? Do I want an opportunity to grow a consultancy? Do I want to rise up in my, you know, my job because you know I have no more degrees to earn and everyone in my level now has all the same degree? It might be just the thing I need to stand out. So you have to know why you're doing it. And having a strong why, and I, I think that that's important, helps you decide what kind of book this should be and why you're writing it. So like, the first premise is understanding that deep value. Uh, that's so important because ultimately a book isn't words on the page. I know that seems like what it should be because we're reading words, but books are a message that people carry with them outside of the book. Just like you did with Pat, you know, that book changed my life. That book did this. It's not what he said in the book. It's the thing that made you do or take an action or change a belief. That's what books are, right? And I know this is powerful because I've seen it happen outside of books too. So I've coached TEDx speakers and I go, your message should be just as powerful on that stage as it is in your book. And that, that talk can shift people too. It's not the length of it, it's the message. So I think that's really important about starting out, helping people understand their why and what they're hoping to achieve. So for me, with my why, it was really because I saw that I had made significant sacrifices in my life to kind of chase a goal of society's, you know, ideal of success, right? Like get a PhD and become a nurse executive and, you know, climb this. And in doing that, I really lost who I was and, and really sold away my values. And I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize it until my daughter died. And I realized I had missed half of her life because I was, you know, really focused on building my career. That was my why. For the listeners that are out there wondering like what their why is or really trying to kind of get clear on it, like how in-depth does their why need to be? Mine was really in-depth, but I've met other folks that maybe it was, you know, they had a why, but it wasn't obviously related to a death or something like that. 
How does somebody determine like, okay, my why is good enough to want to start writing this book? Great question. You have to have a strong enough why that is taking you somewhere that you're not already. Because if it's just to give information or one of the author responses, when I say, why do you want to write this book? They'll say, if I could just help one person. And that sounds noble. It sounds lovely. <laughs> I just tell them, walk out your door and go help one person. It's much easier to do that than it is to write a book. So if your goal is to help one person, do that. Don't go help one person and don't spend your time writing a book. That's not a strong enough why. The reason I say that is you're going to find resistance in writing the book. You're going to, as the author Stephen Pressfield says in the book War of Art, there is a strong resistance that comes with being a creator, a writer. And it's, it's strong. And if you don't have a strong enough why, you can't push through, you'll give up. You'll have all these reasons why this is the book, the book for now. I don't have time, um, whatever. Time is not the problem. It's never the problem. And I show people how to write in less time and it's never time that they're missing. They're missing a reason to do it. And 81% of Americans, according to the New York Times in a poll, an article they wrote, said that had have a book inside of them, 81% but only 3% ever actually finish a manuscript. That's a really small percentage. And of that 3% who actually do finish, only 30% of those small percentages ever hit publish. So we're talking a fraction of 1% ever become published authors because there's incredible fear. And I had it for 24 years. Remember, I had been thinking about it. And finally, my why was stronger than my fear. I want to make a change in my life. I want to leap from this place to this next place. And that's what has to be strong. So you have to that you have to have that, that a strong enough why. It doesn't have to be something uh, um, like the one you described in your family, in your life. But it has to be clear. If it's not clear, then you'll find anything else to do. You'll clean the junk drawer instead of writing. <laughs> you'll you'll end up buffing the car. You'll actually go visit the in laws. You'll do whatever it takes. But right. So why is more important than you actually think? I love that. I I actually have a really strong why, and I still. When I'm like, okay, today I'm writing. I have the full day. I'm going to get my writing done. And then I'm like, oh, but I better check my bank account and I better pay some bills. And I haven't paid those bills in a minute. And I, so I, I get it. And then I sit back and I'm like, Chris, you're facing resistance. Like just sit your butt down and write. And it's, it's funny because you just don't anticipate. You're like, especially like the way that you have helped coach me. Like it is very organized. Like I know exactly what and when and how I should be writing, but I'm still like, well, you know, I'm going to wipe my desk off instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people misunderstand that because technically we've all been trained to be writers, right? We've been in school for X amount of years, especially if you're a nurse executive, you know how to write, you know, the technical things, one word after the other structure. Well, if it were structure we needed to write, we would all be, there'd be a bazillion books. But I find that the biggest problem isn't, isn't how, it's why. And so my job is to help remove the belief that um, they have to learn how. So part of the, the other resistance is we were trained to be editors, which means we spend our time thinking about the end result more than we think about the creation process. Editors are trained to say, is this good? Is it, is it bad? And we're, we're used to that. We turn in a paper to the TA or whatever, and they go, not so good, be fine. You know, we're waiting for the critique before we even write it. That's why we put off those papers. Even my thesis, the year and a half I took to research it, I probably could have done that in a month. I was just <laughs> avoiding doing the writing more than anything else, but I'm afraid of the outcome. So I, 
put it off, put it off, put it off. So editor, editor brains can get in the way of creating brain, the creator brain, which is I'm putting this on the page. I'm not trying to judge if it's good. I'm not trying to say that it's, it's going to be well-liked. That's not for now. That's for later. So part of it is getting yourself out of the way. And that's really difficult. And most coaches that I find that are book coaches are either former editors or English majors. And there's nothing wrong with that if you were an English major or an editor. But most of those people haven't written books and they don't know this. When I talk about resistance, they just say, well, just get organized, get a plan, get an outline and write. Well, why would you need to have any program or a book to tell you that? You should know. You all have books, pick up a book and look and write. But that's not how it works. I wish it were that simple. Wow. Okay. So in order to write a book, we're going through some steps. We've talked about really identifying your why. We've talked about some of the resistance that happens. Next step, like, how do you decide what you want to write? I know when I came to you, I didn't know. I was like, Azul, I don't know what I want to write. I just know I want to write something. Like, I know I've had this crazy story and I don't know exactly what I want to write. So how do you, how do people start to begin to identify that? Yeah. I tell people that, look, books, books are not words first. They're ideas first. They're messages first. They're like, what's this thing I'm trying to tell people first? And I think words can get in the way of really good books. If you're like me, you probably bought books. You started reading going, this seems like word soup. I don't know where it's going or why I'm reading it. And I feel like it's just going in circles, it's pontificating about something to sound smart, but I don't know what he, he or she's <laughs> trying to tell me. And then we put it down and you're like, everybody says it's a good book, but I don't understand. Well, part of that is might be, it's not for me. That could be possible. That was written for somebody else. But the other thing that's probably true is that we think words are the thing. So how do you start? You figure out what's this message? What's this thing I want to start with? And that's why I have people do visual activities and say, look, a book is an idea first. The book is the message that people carry away. Let's figure out what that is before you worry about the words that support that. So I often have people draw a visual map of their idea and put it on a single page so we can talk about it as a real thing. It's a real thing. The idea is real. But oftentimes people overstuff books because they're afraid that it won't give enough value. Like that's not that can be enough of an idea for a book. I'll just add this idea and that idea. And pretty soon it's six ideas attached into one thing and it gets confusing. And that's why you read a book and go, I don't know what it's talking about because it's talking about so many things, you can't follow it. So the first thing is to get simple. Show, show us your book on a page, draw it out. Outlines seem like a safe way to do it. Well, I'll just outline my book. Well, that's like, that's like going on a trip. Like I'm going to do a six week you know, backpacking trip in Europe and I'm going to plan every moment. This is where I'll meet that really cool old man. He lets me play the accordion. And this is where I'll eat that really special dinner and get invited to the, the grandma's house. And, and I'll plan it out and you go on your trip and nothing happens that way. Well, that's kind of how books can happen. You, they happen in the journey. They don't happen in your planning of the great thing. They happen during like the writing, the discovery, the, the uncovering of things. You can't say this is the moment that's going to be great by creating an outline, by creating a schedule for a trip. That's not how it happens. It happens by setting the intention this is my hope. This is where I'm going with this. I'm hoping to get this clarity. And then you write the, the words. The words help show you the way. The words are a magical tool that help you find your message and help you kind of overcome the doubts that I'm the right person to be writing this. My story really isn't that great. It's actually this or that. That's what the words are for. It's not for giving you the direction for others to follow. That's what you'll assemble later. That's how you'll put it together. Most people don't probably know, or at least can imagine that movies aren't shot in order. You don't go film a movie from the opening scene to the end. 
yes, they do it for budgetary reasons. So we're doing all one location or this crew shows up here. But the truth is, when you watch it, it's masterfully done, like it's happening in real time. Well, that's the assembly part. Well, books are like, that can be like that too. They can be assembled to be masterfully done. So you feel like it's telling an entire story, like as if it's designed this way. And it is. But the assembly part of putting it all together, editing it and finding the message and making sure that nuances are there happens through the process. It doesn't happen in you sitting down to plan it out before you write it. I love that. And that's true. And I found, I find that as I write too, like I don't have chapter numbers, like one, two, three, four. I don't know which order they're going to be in still at this point. I'm just kind of like picking a topic in that day. I'm like, that sounds like something I want to write about and just kind of writing it. I still, I, at this point, don't know what order they're going to go in. So, okay. So we've walked through like, okay, we have this idea. We're kind of like nailed it down through visual process. Now we begin to write. What does that look like? Yeah. I tell most people they have to rewire their brain what writing is. Most people who try to write a book say, I've been writing this book. I just can't get anywhere. I'm just writing. And I say, tell me what writing looks like. They're like, what do you mean? I thought, just describe what you do. Like, do you sit on a computer? Are you in an office? Are you at home? Where are you at? And then I talk about it. And I said, so how many words show up when you write? Like, I don't know. I'm like, so how do you know you're writing? Because writing is only words. Writing isn't researching. <laughs> writing isn't Googling quotes. Writing isn't doing, checking out some stats. Writing isn't reading other people's books. That's not writing. Writing is only one word after the other. And most people call writing something else. They're trying to write, but they're not writing. So I think that's the thing I tell people is like, look, keep track of how many words you're putting on a page every time you sit to write. That's how you know what writing is. If it takes you five hours to write 500 words, then we have to, we have to remove the things you're calling writing and get it to writing is only words one after the other. Most people think in their head and then write what they think on the page. And I want people to do the opposite, which is don't think anywhere but on the page. Think on the page. Um, because writing should only look like words on a page. Once you retrain your brain that that's writing, you will stop wasting time what you call writing. And you realize you can write much faster than you think if you just don't tell yourself you're writing. It's avoidance usually. It's proving, oh, I had to look this up because I need facts. Why? Because you don't believe what you're saying is true. Or you're, I, I get why you need statistics and facts to back up a claim, but it's not going to prove your point um, if you don't have one. <laughs> you can't. Have you read those books? They're nothing but statistics and facts. You're like, I don't even know what this is about. They're called those dissertations. Books, they're, <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever read my thesis. It's sitting in UCLA library somewhere. I've never read it since I wrote it. Uh, I haven't written mine. I haven't read mine since I wrote it either. It's so sad. Right. Yeah. I don't even know. I'm kind of terrified to read it. But the thing about it is, is that that, that kind of writing we thought was important. We were trained to write academically. But we don't read and consume academically. We're emotional beings. We need proof. We need evidence. But those proofs and evidence could be your own life, your own stories, the stories of others. Uh, statistics and data can play a role. But I think most people use that as a way to avoid having something meaningful to say. So writing is one word after the other. It's better to write for eight minutes a day every day than it is to write sporadically, call it writing five hours here and there and write very few words. Because if you wrote for eight minutes a day, I write very slow. I probably write about 28 words in a minute. But if I wrote for eight minutes a day at that pace, I would finish two books in a year if I wrote eight minutes a day every day. Wow. Okay. For those of us who have no clue how long, how many words go in a book, how many words typically are the average like for books? So if we're talking about writing two books, how many words is that? Uh, so 
I would say, you know, depends on your genre. Like obviously fiction is different. A fiction has, you know, different genres have different lengths. But most of us here for professionals, we're thinking of a nonfiction book. Those books can range from 45,000 to 75,000 words as in a, you know, in that range. So that's, that's not a lot of words. If you think about if I'm doing 28 words in a minute and I'm writing for eight minutes a day, or I'm writing for an hour a day, that's 1600, you know, 28 words or whatever it is, 1682 words. If I write 60 minutes a day, that's 50,000 words in an hour a day in 30 days. That's how I figured out the math in my book. I was mm-hmm. like, I could do this. I just had to get a word count. Like I've been avoiding this forever. And I just did the math and say, if you do it like this, you'll finish this book. You don't need more time. Asul. I was like, if I go to a cabin, I just need to take two weeks off. I'll write this book. <laughs> I've almost never had that happen with a client who told me they were going to do that. They go away and they come back. Well, I'm a little bit more confused. I'm like, see, you thought that would be the thing. I need time. I was like, time is a, is a, is a belief. So usually, you know, people can achieve that. Now, now it doesn't include the editing process or any of that, but getting a messy, ugly draft is the hardest first step. So I encourage people to get them done quickly. It's hard to work with, to say you're a, a potter, for example, throwing a pot on a, a potter's wheel. If you're just taking clay, you know, you need, you know, one little pellet at a time, you need a whole lump of clay. Then you can start to f- turn on the wheel and mold it. But without clay, there's not much to do. So like that lump of clay is that first messy draft. Then we can sculpt it into this beautiful thing. But most people will say, no, 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 no. I'm going to wait for good clay first. And when the good clay comes, then I'm like, and they just keep collecting clay and they never finish anything. Oh my God. I feel like the clay collector. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, uh, oh my gosh. I, I, the struggle is real as well. And you're right. I do find myself going back like, okay, well, I'm writing this and it sounds good, but I want to have evidence of it. And then I you know, stop everything I'm doing. And then I go, I'm like sitting here with my desk right now. So for those of you who can't see, I like literally have like articles on my desk right now. It's so sad. So, okay. So we, we got to get out of that editor brain. We got to get the first draft done. Now let's say we've done this. We've done a 30 day writing sprint. Cause we have this fantastic coach and <laughs> we have our, we have our ugly piece of pottery. What are next steps? Well, the next step is you need to do a read-through. So the, the lucky thing for me is before I was a teacher, I worked in televisions. For those of you who, who are, sitcoms are sort of fading away these days, it seems, but I worked on sitcoms and, you know, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Married with Children. And I would go in a little early on taping days just to watch them do the read-through with the actors and the directors and the writers. And they sit and read the entire script through. And then in real time, they try the jokes. If they don't work, they go, let's rewrite that. And they rewrite it in real time. They don't have time to go back and polish, but they're filming on Friday. It's Tuesday. So like writing needs to get done. Well, you need to do a read through of your manuscript once it's there, because it's probably messy and you got to read it and put it in order, assemble it in order. Like, I think this is the way I want them to follow me through this journey. And you don't have to be right, but you just do your best to assemble this piece, this manuscript and do a read through. Like get a friend say, Hey, come over with me. I'm going to read this out loud. We're going to see how it works and feels. You're not trying to edit words. You're just trying to say, does this feel like me? Does this the message I'm trying to get? You're like, well, I kind of, what do you mean by that? You're like, oh, let me just, okay, I mean this. You type it in there. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Oh, that's so good. Oh God, you got me. Right there. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you. So you just keep going. You're, you're, you create edit as an event. You want to kind of like edit in real time so that you go, okay, gosh, I think I, that feels more like I was trying to say, and I thank you for helping me kind of get it right. Now you don't know until it goes into editing if, it, if it's strong enough, but you have 
a first draft that has been read through and you can even get other people to read it ahead of them. Go, Hey, could you read this? This is not edited. It's messy, but like, give me your thoughts. What is, what are you wondering? What are you missing? What do you want no, to more, more of, you know, no critiques. I don't need English teachers trying to fix my grammar yet. It's not there. <laughs> I just want to know the message. Do you get it? That's part of the editing process. You're kind of like getting feedback, small iterations of improvements. Then you're going to go start looking for professional editing. Those are the people that are going to help start to polish words. I say they're like Photoshop people for words. They're going to make you look real good at the end, but the poses are not right. Then they're going to have, they're going to just clean it up, but they're not going to be able to help you with some things. So that's why those read-throughs, those early assembly, early readers help get the process kind of moving forward quickly. Um, Steve and my sister-in-law and my mom were wonderful at helping me get the manuscript better early on because it was kind of messy in the beginning. I was kind of like embarrassed to show anybody like, Ooh, this is like, this is like having someone clean your chonies. They're like, Ooh, I don't know. About that. <laughs> but only mom can see those. <laughs> Nobody else can see that. I don't, only husband and mom can see that. <laughs> that's, that's how it felt. I felt like embarrassed. <laughs> like, this is messy. And I know it's messy, but uh, I wanted people to, to like, give me feedback. Like I'd rather be messy in front of the few trusted people and then clean it up before it goes to the world. So that's kind of like the, the little steps you're making towards the manuscript improvements that, that you want to make. Okay. And so then we get it to the editors. There's a lot of different types of editors that I learned about. Do you want to quickly like kind of touch on a couple of different types of editors? Because I had one editor for my dissertation and it was literally like the person who was like, dot the T's, cross the I's, you, this is misspelled. Like that was the only editor in my mind that I knew about. Yeah. I love that you said dot the T's and cross the I's because that's exactly what I would say. Even, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the idea of it being editors, it's a team sport. I used to think that my first book, I made the biggest mistake of thinking there's some that you just give it to a, an editor who's what you described. Mm-hmm. But really, there's a series of editors. The first step in editing is usually or can be a substantive or developmental editor. Their role is to look at the overall structure of the book. Is this book designed and meet the needs of the intended reader? If your intended reader is people who book people on stages for big events, does this deliver that for that person? If your reader is a, you know, a certain age bracket or a certain group of people, does this deliver? If your reader is academics, maybe you do need more data. For the most part, our readers is the most important thing. We're thinking about that. So the developmental stage is, does this work? Does this manuscript hold up? Do we try to put too much in here or are we missing some key elements? That's the first editor. They're like developmental in nature. After that, you move quickly into sort of the edit different types of copy and line editing. Each of those copy and line editors job is to do different things. First, the chapter level where they give you big notes on the chapter and structure. And then the second one gives you notes on paragraph by paragraph, line by line. Like these, this needs to be better here, this word here. And each one, the closer you get towards the final draft is editing closer and closer to, to the sentence level. And the proofreader job at the very end is to look for typos, mistakes in spacing, um, things like that. But I had no idea that these were all the roles that there were for editors. Line editors are not the same as copy editors. And I didn't know that. I didn't know their role was different. I thought, don't they just, can they just fix it all, please? Like, please, um, you said you're an editor, edit. Yeah, fix this, please. <laughs> and then I, I did that. I sent it to an editor and then I put it out in the world. And then Steve went and read. He's like, you know, there's a hundred different mistakes here. I was like, what? I thought editors fix everything. And he's uh-huh. like, I guess not. So it took me a while to learn that there's, they're not all equal and they have different roles. Even with all those editors that I told you about, it's, it can happen where there'll be like 
a strange word, you know, on a different country spelling weird because no one caught it or didn't know or some typo occurred because there's human error. But for the most part, with all those editors, you have a much higher percentage rate of getting a manuscript with fewer potential errors, you know, and if they are, they're really small and they can be fixed later on and an addition. So editing is a team sport and they, they use the direction given set out by the original editor to keep it on track and polish the words. But if the first draft isn't good, you don't want to polish a turd because the shiny turd is still a turd. <laughs> so you want the early developmental edits to be like clarifying, get it really strong, yeah. like the message strong first. That it goes, God, this is so good. I want more of this. Let's do that. And it's sometimes painful, to be honest, to have honest feedback from an editor go, I see where you're going with this, but it didn't meet the mark. You're going to have to change this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh. You're like, I thought so, I was done. Yeah. <laughs> Here you do it. They're like, I can't do this. You have to tell me why this is important, who this is, why yeah. this, give me another story here. Like, okay. So the, there's, the, there's a process. And if I told people that editing was just as hard as writing, they probably wouldn't start, but it is probably true because now you're refining something that you finally put on the page. Okay. And then now we've gotten editing done and then you have a choice now around publishing, which yes. I had only heard of self-publishing because... I actually was introduced to you you um, through Pat Flynn's podcast when he talked about self-publishing his book. So yeah. what, how do you, like, what are the differences and how does one decide? That's a great question. So because of the shift in the digital age, publishing has been changing just like other traditional mediums, television. You know, many of us grew up with three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And we all talked about the same shows because there were only three. They, you know, I watched the Brady Bunch at five on Tuesdays <laughs> or whatever it was. So, but since things have changed and you can have your own channel and your own things, that's happened in publishing true. So some of the things that have changed is that getting your book published and distributed on Amazon is actually very easy and inexpensive. And some, you know, putting it on Amazon actually is free. You don't, they don't charge you to put your book there. So self-publishing is very, uh, is shifting. There used to be a perception of self-publishing is not good. But the quality of book and the quality of the, the content is based on editing, design, the professional aspect. And so self-publishing is really when an author chooses to be their own publisher, where they're taking on the responsibility that a publisher normally would do, which is finding good editors, designers. How do I get it on Amazon? How do I, how do I get reviews? Like They're taking on a big responsibility. It's a, it's a second job, really, to learn all that stuff. But they can do it just like Pat did. And that's one of the reasons he asked me to help him write and know what do I do? How do I get this in bookstores? How do I do these things? You have to have some knowledge. Otherwise, you're going to spend time learning, which is fine. That's what I had to do. But self-publishing is really great for things like you want speed of time. Let's say you know, you might write the book and get it out. It's out within the year you started. That's pretty amazing. But in the publishing world, if you finish a manuscript, you have to get permission. So what I mean by that is you need an agent who will shop your book to publishers because most traditional publishers won't take a manuscript unsolicited, um, you know, who doesn't have an agent attached to it. Uh, do you need to write a book proposal, which can be anywhere from 10 to 60 pages long? And they're looking for your marketing plan. Who, where's your reach? How big's your email list? What influence do you have? How will you sell this book? So half the book isn't even about your book. It's about how will you sell this? Because remember, a publisher's job is to make money selling a product and the product is a book. They're betting on 100 books this year or 500 books this year, and three of them will make them the most money. So your book might not be the one that makes the money. Your book might be the one that helps them break even. So they're, they're thinking about this as a business. Well, if you're a content creator or an expert, or some, you're trying to use this book for yourself. 
So you 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 might do all those things, get an agent which is taking a percentage of your book, get a publisher who's taking the majority of your book, you know, and you are left with seven percent. <laughs> and wow. then they tell you, Great, your book will be out in two years. You're like, What? But I like I need it now. No, I know, but like you're in the queue for the you know. And that's just how the traditional book world is. It does it doesn't shift very easily. It's like anything traditional. It doesn't like to change. But self-publishing gives you the ease of change, you know. And if you don't know how to do all these things, you can hire a company to do some of on your behalf. Like they can do all that work on your behalf. You could still be self-published. Or find a small independent press that's willing to take a risk on you and maybe partner with you where you put some money in and they put some of their marketing effort behind and they do all the work. There's middle grounds in all this. So you don't have to go become a self-publisher to know about it. But as you know, doing something like even starting a podcast, you have to know how to do it and do it well, or you can easily get lost. Yeah. Yeah. You So you have a publishing agency, but it's not a traditional publishing right. agency. Tell me about it. Well, our, our publishing company is founded on the idea to make a movement with your message. So our, our, our publishing company grew out of the need of our clients, which means they were telling us, now what do I do? I finished the manuscript. I'm really happy with it, but now what? And we would give them these options, like you can self-publish, you can do these things. But like, I don't, I don't have time. I want to, can you help me? And so we said, what if there were a publishing company that exists that actually favored the author more than it favored the publisher? <laughs> Wouldn't that be novel? That we helped inspire the author to take the biggest risk in themselves and that we partnered with them. And so what if the largest percentage of the royalties or the shared royalties went to the author so that they felt like they were in, they got something, they got skin in the game. And so that's how it grew. So our motto at Authors Who Lead is people over paper always. So we figured, why not build a company that's focused on the author? And as we all grow, you know, each book grows in its own way. The whole company grows. The collection of authors grows. Our reputation grows. So rather than trying to figure out how do we make more money from each of these products you're selling for $12.95 on Amazon, how do we monetize the leverage or power behind our author's network and help them become successful on what they're trying to do. And that's where we get value. That's where we find our biggest opportunity. So that's how our company works. The good thing is we have access to all these amazing editors who are you know, freelancing now because the world's changed, uh, who work for big, the big five publishers, Harper, Collins, Penguin. We can have access to those editors and designers and uh, we can produce professional quality stuff that, that, that they can do so we can try to compete with big publishers and have our authors become number one bestsellers and things like that and really achieve what they're trying to do, which is what the biggest goal is. It's not necessary. If their goal is to sell X amount of books, then let's build a product. What's out in the market that we can sell. But most of our authors are like trying to make a movement with their message, which is a different thing. So we're trying to help position them to do the thing they're set out to do first. So, I mean, I love it. You, you've worked with a lot of different healthcare professionals, right? I've seen physicians mm -hmm. and pharmacists and nurses. Tell me what it takes to become a bestseller. If there's somebody out there that's like, yeah, this sounds good. I want to write a book. I kind of got the <laughs> yeah. process. Like, but how do I become a bestseller? What does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, being a bestseller is all about having the attention of an already ready audience. Some of us don't have an audience. We've been busy working like an audience. What does that mean? Well, I mean, how many followers do you have on your Instagram or on Twitter or in LinkedIn or other social media? Do you have an email list where people are paying attention? A lot of people are like, not really. 
So I tell people like, look, the other thing you can do is start to build attention as you're writing the book. Let people know you're doing it. Ask them to get on an early wait list. And the reason I'm telling people this is that most people begin marketing too late. They market when the book's done. And you really need to get the attention of people before the book's done. Take another cue from the movie industry. They release trailers two years before their movie's out because they want your attention now. They want you to be excited now. They may not even done shooting the movie. They're just like, you know, who's in it? What's happening? Who's it for? Why you should watch it? Well, that's what book marketing should be. It takes, I think, seven impressions of something in marketing before people even stop to pay attention. So you putting one social post by my book is not enough, right? <laughs> so you, I tell people to become a bestseller, you have to think like um, a promoter. But I don't like to be salesy or sleazy in that way. I feel gross. So I tell people you've got to carry them on, on the journey from very early. And you can also borrow other people's audience. Like maybe what you're writing about can serve an audience that someone has a podcast on or a blog or, you know, TV programs, you know, love to have feature new people. They, they need media. They need something to talk about. So you can begin to build a plan to get attention. Hitting the bestseller list is about getting a certain number of downloads in the seven day period. So just knowing that and planning the promotion around those seven days is how you can market them. There's ways to borrow other people's audience and buy the, the audience. For example, there are book lists where people are part of that, you know, on Tuesdays comes out a list of all the books that are on sale for 99 cents and they just subscribe and buy 99 cents. They like to, they love to collect books or read. So you just buy into those lists and pay for a promotional period and people download your book on that day. And if you do that 10 times, 50 times, 60 times with different audiences, pretty soon you have this whole influx of purchase of your book and the book skyrockets to number one. That's one of the ways you can do it. Some people are like, well, if it's good, people will find it. I'm like, no, that's not how it works ever. You think the reason you hear about Matthew McConaughey being everywhere all at once is because he knows that someone will just read it. No, even he, a big name person, has to go on podcasts and in the media to sell his book, to get attention all at one time. It's the way it works. And it's just most authors don't know about it and don't understand the structure of a bestseller or how to do a campaign. And so it's really strategic. It's thoughtful, but it's a process. And it starts pretty early on. All right. And then... Kind of to wrap up, I'd love for you to share now, you know, your book brought you some tremendous success on TEDx. So your your TEDx has had over 2.5 million views on it. You know, for the the future authors that are listening, what can writing a book do for your career? How did you become this really famous guy on TEDx? <laughs> famous is probably, that's generous, but... Um, what happened was, remember I told you, I set that intention. I want to write a book that allows me to leap out of being a teacher, like quickly. Because I was like, I, I, I'm, I was pushing 50. I don't have time to like take, I have to make a move quickly. Well, becoming a published author gives me a new level of credibility. And so people started to pay attention to me differently. Oh, you're an author? Which is weird because I felt like, oh, because there was like, you're a teacher always did something. Oh, you're, you're a university instructor. You're this, that. They have a certain level. But for some reason, being an author kind of changed people's minds about who I was. <laughs> you became famous. I became famous, I guess. <laughs> but that what happened was a friend who was an, also an author made an introduction to the TEDx organizer in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and said, hey, I have this guy, Azul. He has an interesting conversation he's having around education. He wrote a book, and why don't you talk with him? That introduction alone led to like a 40-minute chat with this, this amazing man in Dominican Republic and he said, you know, I want, I want you to come talk. Will you come do a TEDx? I'm like, sure. 
And I hung up. I was like, what the heck am I going to talk about? Like, <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> I had been working on this book idea. I had been collecting this single question from students where I asked them what makes a good teacher great. Um, I had collected it from inner city schools in LA, suburban schools in Texas, and elite schools abroad asking the same question. And I collected 26,000 responses to this question. And so I had these wonders like, what does this mean? Why did they try to tell me? And I had written a book proposal for it because I thought I was going to go traditional and pitch it to an agent because I had someone tell me, God, that would be a best selling book. And you could talk to my agent. I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of pressure. So I got a book coach who helps with proposals. And I put it together and he read it. So this is terrible. Honestly, it's not interesting. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> devastated. And he said, no, but he goes, no, no, it's not all bad. He goes, this part where you talk about what kids say, like the quotes that they've given you and you tell why it matters. This is interesting. I was like, do I really have it in me to rewrite this book? And so I said, you know what? I'm going to take this topic and do it as a book conversation on the TEDx. Day. Like I'm going to just do a TEDx. And if it has merit, then maybe I'll finish this book. Because otherwise, I feel like it's not. Well, obviously, people liked it. And so that TEDx talk is the foundation of my book that I'm writing now that I've been working on for years because it's my biggest point of resistance, mainly because I was trying to leave education, not get back into it. But now it's a, a passion project to help young teachers not give up, but to trust their instincts and to listen to kids. So that, that's that's my TEDx story. That's how I got there. But being an author is the only reason. If I were just, hey, he's a really nice guy. He's a teacher. I would be like, uh, there's a lot of nice people who are teachers. But yeah. why, why talk to him? Like, oh, he's an author. Oh, okay. I'll talk to him. He has a message now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's awesome. I love it. Well, Azul, I, you know, I could talk to you forever and ever. And, <laughs> um, you know, I would talk your ear off if I had the ability to do so. But it has been fantastic. I really appreciate all of the gems that you have shared with the audience. There are many, many, many budding nursing authors um, that are listening. And I know that they are just ready to put some amazingness out into the world. If folks would like to find out more about you, where could they find you? Oh, I'd love if they go to authorsulead.com. They can listen to my podcast with the same name, Authors Who Lead. And there you can learn about the programs, what we do, but that's a great place to connect and always reach out there on my social handles, Azul Taronis. Awesome. And I recommend, even if you're not a nurse that's listening to this podcast, um, Authors Who Lead really is for anybody who leads in the space that they're in. So um, definitely check them out. Thank you so much, Azul. This has been a blast. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. 